Welcome to Beyond the Summit. This is Scalability's series of podcasts where we have some really interesting chats to some really interesting Northwest business leaders. If you want to hear more in the series, hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what we do, visit us at scale-ability.co.uk. So today we'd like to welcome Jackie Taylor from For Eden, uh, who is the Chief Officer there. Welcome, Jackie. Hello, thank you. So um, let's kick straight off then, Jackie. Tell us a little bit more about For Eden and what it is that you do. Okay, so um, we'll have to sort of go back a little ways. Uh, we've been around for about 40 years now, but previously we were called Eden Mencap Society. And um, when I joined ooh, 18 years ago, uh, it we trumbled along. We did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Nothing too significant, supported a few children, um, supported a few adults, had one supported living house. And we just worked in Penrith. That's all we did. And um, once you get into somewhere, you think, well, we could do this, we could do that. There's lots of people interested. So we just started on the journey of how we could expand what we did and really just work to what Eden Mencat was at that time. And you bring with you skills and knowledge from past experiences and jobs and and my basic focus was that people that live in the Penrith area who have learning disabilities or autism or both or whatever else comes into the learning disability category, that we were providing services. People were just delivered a service. And I kind of think, well, why are we just delivering a service? They're just everyday, ordinary people like you or I, but we actually deliver a service to them. Why can't they just be doing their own services and telling us what they want? So this started my, how do we develop the Eden Mencap Society further? So we we stumbled along for quite a few years. We expanded, we got more children, more young people, more adults. Um, we then went into contract with Cumbria County Council on Frameworks, which I don't love them at all, but they're a necessary evil, I guess. Well, they were at the time, perhaps they're not going to be in future, but at the time it was a necessary evil. And so we've had to learn about contracting and reading your know, huge documents. And at the end of the day, it's all doing things to people. You know, there's there's no, I don't have anybody documenting what I do. And it's just kind of, why do we treat people differently? Why do we not treat people as equals and just, just embrace our fellow humans and, and walk alongside them and actually enable them to live an ordinary life? So let's forward, oh, quite a few years now. Young man came to me and he said, Jackie, why are we called Mencap? I am not mentally handicapped. And I went, you know what? You're absolutely right. But the reason that we were Eden Mencap is that many years ago, the trustees needed to affiliate with a, a local group to, to enable them to actually run um, the, the, the charity. They had, they had to link with somebody. So at that time, uh, Royal National Mencap was the only learning disability charity. And they're a fa fantastic charity. They do fantastic work. Um, they do lots of lobbying to, to government. Um, and, and what they do is is wonderful, but it's it's national. And we're not we're not London people. You know, the Eden Valley people are a very, very special, precious set of people with um with local community needs. And it's a hell of a long way from 300 miles away in London. So we we went on a journey and we talked about well, what would branding look like? What does it mean? What's all that work? I've never done this before. So how does it work? So we were fortunate to go and get a grant and we worked with some 
really wonderful local people who really understood who we were, what we did and why we did it. And from that, we became For Eden. And the main reason it was chosen was because we are For Eden. All we do is just For Eden. We have no intentions of going anywhere else. We just want to enable the people in Eden Valley and whatever we do is For Eden. But it also gave us an opportunity to bring in our little businesses. So the branding has become more valuable since we changed our name than we ever thought it would be. So now we are Cafe for Eden, Bake for Eden, Fix It for Eden, Skills for Eden, Advice for Eden. So everything that we do has for Eden branding, but it has a little bit of a different um, slant on what we, we provide. And and I hate to say we provide services. We don't. We provide opportunities for people to get involved and lead an ordinary life. And that's all for Eden is. That's it. Just helping people to live the best life they can live. So how how have you ended up as chief officer then? Did you did you start in that role or is that something that's developed over? Because 18 years is quite an impressive stint. It is, yeah. Um, I was working for another big charity um, and the, the boss I had at the time had said to me, I'm going to be moving jobs and the place I'm going to wants to reprovision institutionalised settings into the local community and there's a job there for you if you want it. So that's how I moved from mental health, which I was working at the time, into learning disability, which fascinated me. And I worked there for a couple of years, um, but it opened my eyes into um, lots of other things that happen in in institutions which are particularly present. And and these these ladies suffered an awful lot. So actually getting people into their own homes in the community was an absolutely enlightening experience for me. And I thought this has definitely got to be better than being locked up in, in an institution and restricted and in your life, not a life. You're just there in, in, in service to other people. So I had worked there for a few years and I was doing a lot of commuting. My children were young, but I needed to, to work. And I needed to have a life as well as my children having a life. So, and I'd always worked. I didn't have children until I was early 30s. So for me, um, I'd had a life and I had a career and I kind of didn't want to give up just to talk baby talk, but I could do both. So lots of traveling. And I saw a little advert literally in the Herald, um, which is the local newspaper in Penrith. And it just said chief officer wanted um, for learning disability charity. And I thought, okay, I'll have a go at that. Um, and so I did. Um, and I, I got the job as chief officer. We turned over, I think the turnoff was 101,000 when I first joined the company. Uh, and last year we turned our million. So um, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. It's taken a long time to get there. But all we do is just expanded what we do. We don't, we're not doing anything different than what we started out doing. We're just doing more of the same. And there are more people now in a, able to get services um, when I when I first joined, there wasn't anything. There was no structure. There was no contracts. There was nothing. So people didn't have anything, and it was very much community supported. And we've gone back round to that now because I absolutely believe that community support is the right way to go. Why why do we need somebody having a delivered service when actually the community can support them perfectly ably? As long as we've got people in the community understand and are aware of it, and you know a little bit of support we enable people to have and normalizing their lives rather than restricting their lives and telling them what to do and when 
once people get the chance to live within the community, they absolutely love it. And, and therefore, the disability completely disappears. And all you see is the person's ability and the fact that they're just like you and I, but just need a little bit of support every now and again to keep things right. So would you say that that work around doing um, the implementation of structure and strategy um, and having a more commercial mindset, I suppose, has, has been the enabler to get you back to that original journey of, of let's just get this into the community? Very much. The, the businesses have been created because people, other businesses, don't employ people with learning disabilities. The first thing people hear when they've got that label, because it's a label, isn't it? It labels of packets and boxes, but we we people who don't have a disability have to somehow label people that do, which I find really quite bizarre that you need to say, oh yes, they've got learning disabilities. Well, actually, no. There's not, they just they just think differently and do things differently because they haven't had the same opportunities as you or I have had. And if you're not given opportunities, then you are gonna um, have your life shut down and therefore you won't be able to expand and understand how to live an ordinary life when you're in your teenage years because you're not given the opportunity because you're sent to a service and the service have to have outcomes and the service has to complete paperwork to make sure that they're, they've done their job right. So therefore, this person's life becomes controlled and that isn't fair, that, that we have no rights to do that to anybody. But everything's evolved in that service-driven way when you get a contract from the council, you have to deliver on their outcomes because they have to deliver on government outcomes. So these people become a conduit to somebody else delivering a service to get the money. And that can't be right. You know, why Why do we have to restrict people? And, and everyone will say, well, we don't restrict them, we support them. Well, really? So when they come in and you tick the sheet that they've arrived for that day, and when you've ticked off that they've managed to do this and do that and do the other, that's not enabling people. That, that's that's gathering data on somebody to prove that you've done the job to get paid to do the job. Nobody does that for me. I might get an annual appraisal, but that nobody does that on a daily, weekly basis. Nobody reports that back and has all of these meetings. And there's a whole, there's a whole new world grown up around delivering services. And we now have brokers that, that commission services. We have social services and, and, uh, and um, social workers and commissioners. All this has all grown up. And actually, all people want is just to be accepted and, and into their community as everyday ordinary people. We, we've lost that whole um, value in our fellow human. And, and, you know, when I go back to my early days, when I was at school, we, there were special skills for people that, and they were never integrated into schools, so we never understood. And so they became an object of ridicule. And the times I've been out and done talks, and especially to young people even now, they still have that ridicule thing. You know, they'll use spacker. They'll use the most degrading terms. And that's come from parents and how they were educated back in the you know 60s, 70s and 80s, because that's what happens. So we've come from locking people away into an institution, locking them away in special schools, bringing them out and putting them into services. So nobody wants to employ people with learning disabilities, which is really sad because they've got some fabulous attitudes to work. And at the end of the day, not only have you delivered what you've had to deliver, but actually within you, you've got that lovely, warm, fuzzy feeling of actually enabling somebody to do something for themselves, sometimes for the first time. 
and and that is just so incredibly wonderful. So creating the businesses was something that just happened really as a, a bit of a sideline. My original life before children was a caterer. Um, I qualified as a chef and a patisserie many, 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 many moons ago. And that never leaves you. So I worked in lots of hotels in the 80s. A woman in the kitchen wasn't always welcome. So I had a bit of a rough kitchen upbringing, but that's okay. It taught me an awful lot. It's life experiences on the way. Um, but it stays with you. And I've always been quite passionate about um, helping food with people who have learning disabilities because a lot of the time, they're, they're fed processed food. You know, um, staff go into a house, oh, let's get a lasagna out and bung it in the oven. It's usually a bought-in thing. Um, ping-ping in the microwave or, you know, quick and easy stuff. Most people that have domiciliary care only maybe have 15, 20 minutes. So it's got to be a quick meal because they're on the hop the whole time. And and people wolf the food down. They don't, they don't enjoy eating it. They don't talk about the experience and the flavours and the taste. They shove it down because it's a means to an end. And I really found that quite difficult when we were starting to do our first little day service, which was called GBU, which was grow it, bake it, you do it. And, and grow it was because we had a little allotment and we just used to grow things. But people would say, we would talk about things like, where do carrots come from? Oh, Morrison's. Where do potatoes come from? Morrison's. Where does milk come from? Morrison's. You get the gist. So it was like, well, why do they all come from Morrison's? Well, it's because the support staff take them to Morrison's every week and do a weekly shop. And so people believe that they come from Morrison's. Why don't people go into the community and buy from the fishmongers and the greengrocers and the butchers and go and talk and have that interactive communication? Because that's what I did when I was younger. And I know we've got these massive supermarkets now and we're all guilty of doing this big shop. Well, I was, but I'm not anymore. I've completely changed my shopping habits because actually it's the most worst time of my job a week going into a supermarket to do the shopping. There's no interaction. It's busy. It, the products, you look at them and they're all like covered in plastic and it, it preened. And it's like, this is just not me. So I've actually reversed what I've done. But I've reversed what I've done because I've worked with the guys to enable that to happen because we did start going out to, well, where do carrots come from? Well, let's go to a greengrocer's way because you've got carrots that are still dirty and they've still got the green tops on. Um, so we used to go out and then we'd say, right, well, let's go on. What what particular in the world is is there something going on? Is it a particular day to day? So we started looking at world events, and we would say, okay, well let's look at Argentina for this week. Let's that be our, to our topic. So what do people in Argentina wear? What's the weather like? What's the food like? Let's pick some recipes. Let's go on the internet and get a recipe. Let's go and shop, but get this recipe, bring it back, and let's prepare it together and eat it. So that's how our how our bake it started because we just started to enjoy food together. And some of the guys had never eaten real food. They'd eaten processed food. They'd eaten sloppy carrots and stuff like that. But actually eating like a stir fry made with fresh bean sprouts, it, oh, I'm not eating them. They look like worms. So, okay, let's let's see how we can make it work. So they dared each other to do it. And actually then they enjoyed doing it. So when you can get really good nutrients into people and they enjoy making food, then that becomes a real experience and it became the whole day. So we started doing it more often and they like doing it. So as we expanded and as we did more things and as people got more keen to do it, we um, saw a little advert again in the Herald and it was the NHS and they were going to bring their headquarters to Penrith. So we 
we got the guys to go and do a pitch and we had to pitch to really, really big CEOs uh, and people in the NHS. And we went in. I didn't pitch at all. I stood in the back and all our guys went in with a little picnic bag with all the food that they'd made. And they talked about how they made it and what they did and what it tasted like and why they did it. And we won the pitch. So for 10 years, we ran the cafe in Verita House in Penrith. So that gave the guys retail experience, new machine literacy. They learned how to make coffees. They learned how to make soup and sandwiches. They learned how to stock rotate. They learned how to put things together and put the correct labels on. All of these skills and experiences that they just needed to learn to be able to run a cafe, they did. And in 2018, late 2018, there was a little advert, and again in the paper, that... Um, there was a cafe coming for rent at Broom Hall. So I thought, you know what? The guys are ready for this next step. So we we opened our cafe on the 1st of February 2019 and had the most fabulous year of working it all out for ourselves. Um, Verita was still there and we carried on making all of our, our food at Verita. So the guys at Verita were making the food, then it was taken down to the cafe and then we sold our food. So it gave opportunities for barista and opportunities for customer service in a different environment. So again, we were increasing those skills. And unfortunately, um, in 2019, we got the shock news that Barita House was going to be sold. And therefore, we no longer had a production area for our cafe. It's like, okay, that's a bit of a problem. So what do we do? Well, I went and talked to a, a local investor who has supported us many times where they give us some money and then we pay it back without interest, which is wonderful. And we borrowed some money. We went and bought, bought a bakery. So the bakery um, opened on the 1st of February 2020. Marvellous. And of course, we had shut down on the 23rd of March 2020. So that caused us a lot of issues, but we only had to shut the front door. The back door was open. The kitchens were still open. We were still producing food. Um, and we we are still out of that to this day doing that. And we're trying to to get our bakery up to some sort of level. We don't quite know where it sits anymore, but that's fine. We'll work it out. We always do. But we work it out with the guys. We don't just decide what we're going to do and then open the doors. We talk to the guys. So our daily bakers are going to be going in there very, very often, well, every day. And they're going to be um, making the new products. We're now linking with external businesses to provide um, our wonderful tray bakes, which everything is homemade in-house to top quality ingredients. Um, the guys make it all. They fully understand how it is. Some of our guys go out and pitch. And we've actually got three contracts very recently by the guys pitching. So a new little sort of business is going to open where we can actually now supply our local companies with our fabulous products. So that helps us when our footfall is poor. Um, and then we have our fix-it team. And that came around purely because lots of things break. And when they break, we have to um, get somebody in to fix them. And it costs a lot of money. And we don't have that income. So one of our support workers at the time had said, um, well, I can do that. I can change that light bulb. I can fix this. You know, I've, got, I've done joinery in the past. So we worked together. We put a new project together called Fix It for Eden. And... Um, I went to the, the Masonic Tercentenary Grant and I got some money and we bought a van and local companies supported us with lawnmowers and shovels and lots of tools and things. Another company gave us some money for uh, uniforms, PPE. And so Fix It Freedom started. 
and uh, that was wonderful. It's, 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 we, we do people's gardens. Um, we do a little bits of decorating. Last year, we we engaged with um, industrial bid in Penrith, and we did some litter picking and and some gull scaring. Uh, and all sort of really quirky things, but actually these are jobs, everyday jobs that the guys absolutely love doing. And it creates discussion, it creates teamwork. And to me, that's so much more enabling than it is going to a day service and making a card or doing a project that actually never comes to any sort of fruition. It's just something that you do to tick a box to make sure that you've covered people's outcomes, but actually getting out there and doing it is what it's all about and it's just so wonderful to see the guys come back and oh I'm knackered I really hope we've done this and it rains and it but it's all right we're gonna have a cup of coffee and that that's everyday normal discussion and that's exactly what for reading is and that and then eventually as business develop they'll bring in more money they're all they're all keeping their heads above water and um, eventually as the word gets around and more people become experienced more people we employ. We do employ several people in our businesses now. Um, one most delightful story is a young man that I met many years ago and he sat in his bedroom, didn't do anything, left school, sat in his bedroom. His parents were just really kind of concerned that he was never going to to do anything. He had some, some anxieties that caused him not to be able to get out there. Uh, and, and over several years, we worked with him to enable him just to come into the the services that we had to to work in with, meet new people, have a look at things. But it was a real, real challenge for him. But my goodness, did he take them challenges on? And if we fast forward a few years, um, he passed his driving test. He um, decided that he wanted to engage much more and join the Fix-It team. He has now achieved his apprenticeship. And he's also done things like plastering courses and he now works for us full time. So from bedroom to full time work. And last year, he also went and bought his own house. So these little things that nobody sees make such a massive difference. And if that that one thing that happens has been the most amazing thing because it just proves it can be made. I mean, this guy still has his anxieties. He still has his hang-ups. You can't ever get rid of that. But he's learned to manage it, but he also now earns an income, drives and has his own house. And my goodness, is that not the most fabulous thing? Because what else would have been on offer? Sitting in your bedroom and going to a day opportunity if we could get you out of your bedroom. And that's just not the way it is. So it's just wonderful to be able to make those little breakthroughs. There's lots of other little stories like that, but that's the biggest one that always impacts on me. And I just look at this young man and he's now actually going to be moving on from the Fix-It. He's going to start a new business at the side of Fix-It and he's going to run that himself. So that is just incredibly wonderful and it's a really proud moment. And I suppose it's, you know, it's not just the impact on him. His parents must have thought, well, you know, we never imagined this possible for him. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they were potentially facing a life where, unfortunately, they don't know how to, to deal with that in the right way. And their son's going to be living in a bedroom in their house. And, and there must be all sorts of anxieties for parents around that, because as they approach 
elderly years, they must think, well, what what's going to happen to him? You know, if mm-hmm. when we go, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they must think now, wow, that's you know just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Look, look what he's achieved. And like mm-hmm. you say, you know, what would have been the alternative? He would have just been stuck in his bedroom. Um, so that you know, that's a it's an unbelievable story, yeah. Jackie. That's absolutely yeah. fantastic. You've had such an incredible journey in this role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are the what are the key learnings you've taken away? For me, from my journey, we all try too hard to tick boxes and to meet standards and to meet outcomes. And they're all really relevant. I get that. But all we're doing is ticking boxes for other people's proof. I'll give you a little example. My son, um, he's an engineer. Uh, he, he does he does have some challenges. Uh, He's very quiet. He's very introverted. It's just the way he is. Um, Very opposite to my daughter, I have to say, but hey. And uh, I got a telephone call from the teacher uh, at his his primary school. And he just, it's just, oh, he he doesn't concentrate. He doesn't do this. So does he get the questions right? Well, yes, he does. But he's always daydreaming. So no, okay. Um, But if he's actually doing the work and he's giving you the answers, then is that not well it is it is but it just doesn't engage okay that's fine well he's moving on to secondary school we'll see how we go when it came to his GCSEs um he went and did his GCSEs and afterwards when you have the meeting with the teacher and teacher were really cross with him and he said why in your maths did you not really go for that A star he said because you could have got an A star in the maths and you didn't bother and my son said well I know I can do it and you know I can do it so why do I have to prove to anybody else that I can do it I answered the questions I needed to get a C. As far as I'm concerned, that's all I want to do. I spend more of my time filling in paperwork that is of absolute waste and less of my time working alongside the people that I really value and I really want to share my skills and experiences with because that's where I get the most value from and the most fulfillment. And that's where I most. Um, effective. But when you take on a role like this, you're expected to complete the paperwork. And and I get that there's a lot of abuse. I get that there are people in there, but you know what? That's down to your value. So how do we make sure that they've got the right values? And one of the real good ways of doing this is that our guys always interview every person that comes through. And um, they very rarely get it wrong. We've got to put those guys first. That Those are the guys that actually these staff are going to be working alongside. And if they don't like them from the initial off, what the hell are we employing them for? So there's a massive change around we need to do, which comes back into our new career progression pathway, which we're almost finished. It hasn't gone live yet, but we're almost there. So we no longer have a hierarchy. We've got to get rid of that hierarchy. We've got to flatten it. Because I'm no more important than anybody else in the organisation. So we now have a train. So at the front of the train is a driver. And that driver is the person that is receiving the service. So they say what they want, when they want it, how they want it. They get to choose their own staff because that's really important that they they align with the people that they're, they're supporting them to do things. And most of our guys are very vocal about who they like and who they don't like. So in the first carriage behind the train, you've got your learners, your practitioners and your experts. So these are 
what used to be called support workers, we now call them coaches for independence because they're not supporting people. They are coaching people to reach their independence. And they have various KPIs within that. Then we have a second coach, which is your team professionals. So they are your first line management of people who are more expert, more knowledgeable, but they still have to go in there and make sure that they're working alongside people. This is not a sitting in the office, all of your working week, you've got to be connected. And then at the end of the train, we've got the caboose, which is, you know, the governance, the trustees, myself. We've got to make sure that everything down that train works properly and then that service is delivered correctly to that person. So you go on a journey. We're on that person's life journey, but it's also a career pathway so that the staff can go up and down that career pathway, develop, work with different people, build up different skills, um, and then use those skills to enhance the younger people that are coming through. Yeah, our children come with us. Our youngest person was 10 months. Um, most children join us at school age. And they're very, you know, they need lots of support. They come to us after school. They've had lots of education going in. They just want to let off steam. So they build up friendships. Um, they they work with different they meet different people from different schools. So that builds up really positive friendships for them. Um, and then they can have overnights and sleepovers, which is what other children have, but when you've got a learning disability, you very rarely get invited to a sleepover. Um, so we do overnights and holidays and things. And, you know, we go on activity breaks where the kids get to support each other and do things. And then they grow up into younger adults. And then we try and work with them. Now we've got quite a cohort of people that we are working with through employment pathways. What is it you want to do? What would your CV look like? What interests you? How do we get some training? Which one of our businesses would you like to try and see whether or not that's the sort of work you like to do because if we can get you into our bakery we can teach you to be a baker you might want to then become an employed member of our bake team so that's why our businesses are there is to offer employment because actually getting people into the real workplace is really difficult because nobody wants to do it and nobody will fund it so I can't put a coach in to go and support somebody to work in um uh, let's see, you know, a shoe shop, which a lot of them would love to work in a shoe shop. Retail is something that a lot of our guys really like. They're very social, so they really like that retail element. But I can't put a, a member of staff with no income whatsoever into that environment. Now, I know there is things like access to work, uh, and we are aware of that. The problem is that when you or I did our training, we jumped into it five days a week, and we we did it. We worked it, we did it, we learned it. Some of our guys get three hours a week or one day a week and they have a learning disability. How on earth can they retain the information from one week to the next when only they get one day a week or half a day a week? And the outcome of that funding that we get is make sure they get a job. Well, how many years do you want them to do one day a week to be able to get a job? That's not. And then the, the thing is, well, why can't they volunteer? Well, why should they volunteer? If they can volunteer to do a job, why aren't they being paid to do a job? How many times will we volunteer for nothing? We've still got to pay our bills. But the expectation is that people with learning disabilities, they can have a nice little volunteer job. That's that's just not acceptable. So, so hence, our businesses at some point in the future will change the, the, the way that um, the health and social care works in Penrith. 
And I think that's that's relevant for a lot of other organisations. You know, I've certainly felt that in my past in the commercial world, you know, mm-hmm. thinking, why are we, why do I have to go through all this? You know, some of the, I hate to say it, but some of the health and safety standards mm-hmm. in this in this country for really small businesses that are just trying to get off the feet. You know, as soon as you've got more than five employees, all of a sudden you're expected to tick all these boxes that are not even necessarily relevant for your business, but um, mm-hmm. it becomes a disabler rather than an enabler for growth. And, and, you know, and that's for us that are in, are in, have gone through mainstream education and had mainstream opportunities and a, and a given, um, you know, regular employment opportunities that you were just talking about there. How on earth does that then transpose over to these people with, with difficulties? Um, you know, that sounds like a real challenge, but, um, I love the analogy of the train and that, that you're, service uh, receivers are the ones driving that you know that's absolutely fantastic Jackie and that sounds like it, it probably wasn't an easy project to, to get through and, and to deliver and um, but it certainly sounds like it's it's really really working for you and I just wonder uh, are there any people uh, that you've met along your journey you talked about your son there teaching you some really valuable lessons are there any other people that um, have helped you achieve what it is that you know you've achieved so far I think the fact that I worked in kitchens taught me a lot of stuff. You, you start very early, you finish very late. When I when I left to take my first management job, which was actually working in the South with Bernie Inns, um, I met these, uh, this couple. My first couple were Mr. and Mrs. Mazitis, and I will never forget the pair of them. Um, Mr. Mazitis was a very, very proud gentleman. Mrs. Mazitis was the hard worker, but she was the most loveliest mothering person. Having left um the northeast where I, I was brought up to go and work down in London was was the most scariest of experiences. And at 18, that's a pretty wow. But she was like a mother, but she was also very strict. Um, and she worked really hard. She was always there at every shift, seven days a week. They lived on the premises and she was always there. And and that really taught me that if you wanted to do anything, you just had to be there. You can't just be sitting upstairs in an office. She never was. And and if anybody was struggling, she'd come down, she'd pick the plates up, she'd serve, she'd go and talk to customers, she'd jump behind the bar. And, and it was always, wow, I can't believe that. <laughs> wow. Um, and you do role model yourself on, on people that you see that you think, well, I've got to be like that. If I want to be there, I've got to be like that. So it, it does teach you those sorts of things. I've also, again, come across many negative people in my time who have told me how wonderful they are and how wonderful things go. Some of these people are still in those same roles and their their organisations haven't developed or moved or advanced in any way at all because they're the block. Um, They're not prepared to actually open up their minds and think out of the box. And it's probably the reason that I actually took the position that I took with with Eden Mancat when I did, because I got the opportunity to think, well, it's really small. Maybe I can make a real difference. The Eden Valley is massive, you know, it's a huge, rural, diverse area. Transport's rubbish. Um, services are rubbish. Um, everything's miserable. But actually, it isn't miserable in Far Eden. We have this little Shangri-La of um, uh, abilities and opportunities. And all I want to do is just to help those one or two people and all of the, the people that I've met over the years, you form your own opinions of them. And I guess you take a little bit from everybody and you kind of go, okay, so 
So what difference can I make while I'm on this planet? What difference can I make to enable somebody else to have the best life? And, and that's that's where I am and what I'm doing. I'm coming towards the end of my career, most definitely. And I do think there's lots of little differences I've made. I don't need to shout about them. I don't need to put them into some sort of wonderful video or um, write a book or anything like that. I, I'm, I'm not interested in the difference it's made to me. I'm, diff- I'm interested in the small differences I've made to other people that can have a better life than what they've got. It sounds to me, Jackie, uh, and what I'm taking from that is that you're doing all the wonderful things that an excellent leader should do. It's not about you. It's not about your career. It's not about your development. It's not about your achievements. It's all about how you're adding value as a leader of an organization. So what does the future of For Eden look like um, when you choose to step away? You know, I'm I'm assuming that's going to be retirement age. The the passion you have for your organization comes across. It doesn't sound to me like you're going to be looking for another position before you are ready to retire. Um, So so what what does For Eden look like in the future without you at the helm? Well, we are currently doing our new strategic plan and we're working with some external consultants to really unpick who we are, what we do, why we do it. We're looking at every single area. We're looking at our values. We're looking at our vision, our mission. You do need to have these documents in place. But I I am aware that I'm on an exit strategy, um, and I haven't made an absolute decision yet, but it's certainly going to be within the next five years or sooner. So I have to find the right sort of people to not necessarily fill my shoes because that's not something I can do. I can't fill my shoes. But what I can do is to look at this career pathway train that we have. And we, we're we not just going to have coaches that just do this job. Every person that comes into this organisation will be challenged with um, key performance indicators that we will need to see from them about how much they're going to invest themselves in for Eden. You can't explain to anybody that comes for a job how how wonderful it is to walk away from work going, I made a difference today. I guess my challenge is to ensure that the people that are in those leadership roles have that passion to continue to make that work. Because if they don't have the passion, then the organisation will fail. If you do invest yourself into an organisation where when you leave, that door to go home you feel as if you've actually achieved something when you go home you can start achieving again and you can start living your family life there's too much requirements for lives get merged together and people forget that actually when you leave that door I become Jackie Taylor I don't become a CEO but it's amazing how many people think that when you've left that door I am still a CEO but I'm not I can only be a CEO when I'm actually in that environment and and it just it, it amazes me how many people treat me differently outside of that door as well because when I'm outside that door I'm just me and and, and I don't get involved with an awful lot of things because actually my life's really busy at home too and I want to be able to do that and I want every member of staff that works for us to also have that that they come to work put 100% in walk out and go and live your life because actually then you'll really see the value of a work-life balance so that is all embroiled with our new career pathways and, and impressing upon people that you must have a work-life balance. And if we don't have 
turnover, if people stay in the role because they really enjoy doing it, we don't have all the additional costs of recruitment and training and everything, which costs organisations so much more money. If people stay and we don't keep recruiting, then we've got more money to invest into salaries. And, you know, we've talked on um, some of the challenges you have based on your geographical location. So having previously lived in the Eden Valley myself, I can confirm that transport is difficult and lots of other things are difficult. I've been snowed in numerous times when there wasn't even that much snow. And I imagine that's going to hit that recruitment process as well, because you've got such a small pool of people that would have the right skills and the right the right values to be able to take on a role like yours. Um, but what are the great things about the area that you live in? What are the what are the really positive things about the people and the location? What was it that that brought you to the Eden Valley? What are what are the, some of the the wonderful things that you can talk about? So you know why why is the Northwest such an appeal for you? Okay, so I was brought up in in the northeast in Darlington. And we moved south. And the reason that we came back north uh, up to Cumbria, which is somewhere I'd never really been before, is really because of my mum and dad. Um, they were very, very heavily into the South Tandale Railway. My dad was a, a railway man, as was his father, as was his father. Um, my mum's from a farm inside. And dad loved um, railways, everything railways. And he not only worked on the railways all over the country, a very, very responsible hands-on job repairing signal boxes and doing locking technician work, the stuff that just now is all computerised, but still needs some physical stuff. Um, but he also spent all of his time building model railways. And when the South Tandale Railway Alston was closed and then reopened, he was part of that um, early um, team building everything up and putting it all back together. The beauty of Cumbria is, gosh, you know, I mean, I'm sitting here now in Instable, and, uh, you know, the, the sky is clear, it's blue. Yeah, there's a bit of frost on the ground. Yes, we've had some snow. It was rubbish because the gritters didn't come round. The roads were really slippy. You know, it's, it is rubbish. The services that we get are rubbish. But I have hardly any cars go past. I walk out the front door and you've got the birds, you've got the fauna, you've got the flora. I can go for a walk. Um, and when I get in the car, you know, it takes me 15 minutes to go. Well, it's five minutes to the local shop. So I can always get bread, milk, vegetables, stuff like that. But if I want to go to Penrith or Carlisle, it's 20 minutes and I'm there. And I don't have any delays on the roads. I don't have any holdups or um, congestion or anything like that except when there's an accident and everyone uses the A6. But I can pop into Penrith and I can wander around to the lovely little shops that's there. People are people try really hard in Penrith and, and we've built out an, an awful nasty blow over the last few years with big shops coming in and the cost of everything and the lack of footfall. And obviously COVID's had a massive impact on that, but it absolutely will come back because... In this area, people are very community orientated. They value having that conversation. They're not afraid to walk past a stranger and go, morning. Um, you know, there's there's little things, little random acts of kindness happen every now and again. I was in Penrith a couple of years ago before the lockdown and somebody came past and they were just handing out flowers. And it was all random acts of kindness. Good morning. We just wanted to say hello. And it's like, oh, gosh, you know, there's lots of... You can go into the shop, you know, we've got grocers and we've got um, butchers and uh, fishmongers and, and little quirky shops that you can go into. And there's always a conversation. There's always a, what are you up to do? Where do you work for? It gives you a chance. Oh, I work for four Oh, I've seen that. Then what do you do? So 
you can actually get into your community by just having those little conversations. And I, I'm, I am really passionate that our organisation sits in the town centre. We were right in the town centre at one point, but it was so small. We did eventually move up to the far end, but everybody knows where we are. So our guys are in town every single day. So people know who our guys are and they go into town. They don't need support to go into town. They know where they are. They know where they're going. They know what they're doing. If there's a problem, any any one of them will go into a shop and say, would you just phone the office or something? So people really embrace everybody. And, and we do look out. We've got lots of people in Penrith who, who have needs in lots of different areas. Very, very little support. But you know, everyone looks out for them. We have a great um, group of people led by the most wonderful lady called Joan. And, and she does community gardening. And she sets up gardening where she, there's a little plot of land. Let's go dig it over and let's put some plants in. Let's get other people that are isolated and have nothing to come down and just work together and have a cuppa. You know, the Salvation Army have coffee and, and soup kitchens and things. There's, it, you just belong here. And it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you do or who you are, you belong in this area. And, it, and I, I, I would never go back to the northeast. Um, I, I do consider myself as Cumbrian, although I'm very much an incomer and I will always be an incomer. But um, there's everything that you want is on the doorstep up here. And, and when, you know, when I think about London, you know, where we lived, it was constant noise. There was never a dark night. Um, whenever you walked out of your front door, you were straight into it. You know, you always went out of the front door with makeup on and ready for the world didn't bother up here really people don't care get your woolly hat on walking the dog um it's just it's a different way of life and it's more valued life if I didn't have this wonderful outlook and I didn't have the ability just to go out for a walk for 20 minutes and just have a bit of fresh air I I would not be in this job in the city centre it would not be doable and I guess that's why a lot of people don't last long in city centre jobs and they tend to move because life just becomes one big working journey. It doesn't become the opportunity. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Having having lived in uh, London myself in my much younger years, you know, peop, I've certainly found that the, the culture was there that you live to work, yes. you know, whereas up here you work to live. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And uh, I would always fly the flag for Cumbria, one of my favourite parts of the Northwest for sure. Yeah. Um, that, it's been absolutely fascinating, Jackie, hearing all about Far Eden and your journey. Um, thank you so much. Um, it, it's, it really has been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you. 